Hello, cruel world, and welcome to a very special episode of I Love This, You Should Too. I'm your host, Fast Talkin' Indy Randawa, and with me is my lovely co-host, Samantha, the femme fatale, he's... Oh, that makes me sound like I'm wearing, like, a fascinator with a little veil over my eyes. The thing is, this is audio. You could just say that you are. I am. Very she much. is. It looks great. It's dark purple. Well, welcome, everybody. Well, we actually have some news for the first time in ever... It is a very special episode indeed. What's our big news, Samantha? Well, I Love This, You Should Too is now a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is locally grown and community supported. Ooh. We've made it. This is our first step to making all that big podcast money. You know how there's all those rich podcasters going around? Yeah. Well, it kind of is. There are some people who have actually gotten quite wealthy from podcasting. But the majority of podcasts now are either chumps like us who uh, are just in a dark room somewhere talking into the void, or they're already celebrities and they peaked 10 years ago and now they're like, well, now I have an advice show. Pay me money. And then we do. Hmm, yeah. But not here. Not here. This is all a network of local and kind of community-based podcasts. The Podcast Network's whole mission is to ensure that Albertan voices are being heard and that shows are being listened to um, across the province. So, But I, good Albertan voices, like us. Like us. Not like those ones that we hear way too much of already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can we still be political? Oh, I don't know. Well, Damn right we can. Yeah, we can. <laughs> <laughs> so, Indy, tell us how this is going to work. Well, really, for you, our listeners, nothing really is going to change. We'll just say that we're part of the podcast network, and we're going to do two ads per episode, but really, it's going to total about, like, one to two minutes of time. It's going to sound something like this. We'll say something like, hey, did you know about ATB Cares? Because with ATB Cares, giving is easy. Donate through ATB Cares, and ATB will match 20% of every dollar donated to eligible Albertan charities, maximizing the impact of your donation. Look, I did the voice and everything. I like your ad voice. And we got traffic on the hour. (laughs) But actually, it's a charitable thing, so I'm all all for this. So you can uh, visit atbcares.com, and you choose a charity that you want to donate to. You're not giving money to ATB at all. You're giving money to the charity, and they are going to match 20% of whatever you donate. So that's pretty awesome. Sounds like a good deal to me. There you go. That's our ad. That wasn't so hard. See, we all survived. So if you found us through the Alberta Podcast Network and are just joining us for the first time, uh, Indy's... Boy, are you in for a treat. (laughs) Yeah. Indy's going to tell us uh, kind of how we do what we do. So uh, the premise of this podcast is myself and Samantha have very different tastes in films. What are some of the movies that you love, Sam? Uh, Bring It On. Yep. Uh, Titanic. Uh, basically anything from the early 2000s up until now that's girly and chick flicky and rom com Yeah, and I love movies like uh, The Shining, Taxi Driver, Chunking Express, Seven Samurai. So there's some more foreign stuff, some older stuff. But uh, we take turns presenting a movie to the other person, something they haven't seen, something they probably wouldn't watch on their own, and then we discuss it. And in alternating weeks, we also have some like spoiler-free little reviews of things we have been watching. Yes. But uh, most recently, on the last episode, I told Samantha we are going to be watching the 1944 film noir classic Double Indemnity. And that is what we are going to be talking about today. So let's get into it. Yeah, perfect. So Double Indemnity I had seen when I was probably 17 or 18. And I thought that this film is maybe not my favorite film noir, but it seems to epitomize so much of what film noir is. And I think, am I correct in saying that this is your first film noir? I would say so, yes. So, Samantha, I love this movie. Did you? I liked it. Okay. You know what? I'm I'm happy with that. I did not think you would uh, get that far. Yeah, I liked it. It was it was fun. It was uh, 
It was interesting. I enjoyed uh, the intrigue and the plot, um, but I can't say that I loved it. That is fair. And as we talk about this movie, we'll touch on a bunch of different aspects of it. I think I probably want to talk a little bit about the history of film noir because I think it's it's kind of important. Um, I want to talk about the structure of this film because it's a little different than a lot of things we see. We'll talk about the characters and the performances and then also the plot, both the plot of the film and the plot that they hatch for murder. <laughs> Just like that. See, you could, yeah, you could yeah, be I'm, in the movies. I'm ready. Uh, first thing, though, I want to ask you is... I know you sometimes will watch when I'm watching a movie, even from the 80s, and you say it looks very dated and it's hard to get through. Mm-hmm. I, I think that might not be as much of an issue here. Did the time really take you out of it? Because this is a, a 70-ish year old movie. No, 80? it didn't. Whoa, this is an old movie. It didn't. That's good. Yeah, I found it uh, pretty easy to get kind of swept up in the plot and everything. I stopped writing notes when he has the beer in the car. Right. (laughs) That was when I stopped writing notes and I just started watching. Um, Oh, I thought you said that's when you stopped writing notes and started fantasizing about drive-in bars. (laughs) Oh, that would be so good. (laughs) That's a terrible (laughs) idea. Like, I'm just going to drive in, have like eight beers and like, all right, thanks. Bye. Back out. Yeah. (laughs) Attempt to back out. Right. Yeah, I think that this movie, although, of course, very dated in its style, Mm -hmm. it's not dated in a way that makes it difficult to watch now. The pacing is relatively quick. It's still slower than what we're used to these days. Mm -hmm. The performances are definitely stylized, but I feel like they're stylized in a way that it is uh, endearing and novel to audiences today. Right. The way they talked didn't pull you out of it or anything? No, because it was so constant. Like, everyone had kind of a little, like, shtick going yeah, on. That's true. So it wasn't like there were two characters that were, like, really going for it. It was, like, everybody. So I think that allowed me to kind of sink into the world of the movie. I think this episode might be a little different than a lot of the episodes we do, because I think we might spend more time on some of the technical stuff and some of the the history. Mm-hmm. Because as much as I do like this movie, I think it's more important than enjoyable. Hmm. It is enjoyable. I like watching it. But I think its importance to the history of film is, uh, is maybe even bigger than that. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's talk a little history. And uh, if you're playing I Love This, You Should to Bingo out there, you can check off the box for German Expressionism right now because <laughs> I love talking about we it. We made it. <laughs> but uh, this is one where it is very important. So, I've been waiting for that one for years. <laughs> <laughs> if you're new, that's a joke because I love German Expressionism. But we haven't watched any yet. Because we needed to do a stopover in a film noir first. Right. So German Expressionism was a movement in film from the 19-teens. What do you even call those? Uh, Up until the 30s. And the hallmark of these films is that the tangible world reflects the intangible. So people's emotions are depicted on screen by affecting the set. Things are very stylized. Mm -hmm. And I think it's clear how we can see the influence of that onto film noir. I think there's also an influence of um, Italian neorealism on film noir. And that movement was more about showing things as they are, not being a studio, not being the expressionist style where everything was unrealistic and these two like disparate ideas are combined really nicely in film noir because things are like stark and gritty Mm -hmm. but the shadows and that are constantly across people's faces that lends itself into those uh expressionist style Mm. works and then i think the third influence of course is uh pulp fiction of the time All of these detective stories, whether they were serialized or the novels, Mm -hmm. there's a big influence of those into these films. So uh, German Expressionism kind of died in the 30s because of the Nazis. Mm. So Nazi movement started and then all of these fleeing Germans had to go somewhere and many of these filmmakers went to the United States. And they are the ones who created what we now call film noir. 
film noir wasn't called that during the time. Right. So no one made a film noir. Yeah. It wasn't until years later that we classified all of these movies as being a genre. So it's kind of unique in that sense. Like they didn't know they were making a genre. It right. It just kind of, it happened very organically. So all of these Germans who made really stylized stuff came here and got influenced by these crime pulp novels and made things like Double Indemnity. Billy Wilder himself was, I believe, of Austrian descent. He was uh, Austrian and he was Jewish, so he Mm. left quite early. Not a great place to be. Exactly. (laughs) And came over here and made some of the most influential American films of all time. Over here as in North America. Cool. And I wonder if the Nazis never came, would Hollywood be what it is? Because I think now Hollywood is like the film capital of the world. Like I know they're making lots of stuff in Mumbai, but I think the when you talk about big, well-known movies around the world, the vast majority are coming from the Hollywood system. Right. And if all of the European filmmakers hadn't moved to Hollywood in the 30s and 40s, would that still be the case? Would no. Would Berlin be the heart of filmmaking? Right. As it was then. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. If history had been different. So we have all these Europeans in Hollywood making these movies. And when this comes out in 44, it's a very tumultuous time. Of course, World mm-hmm. War II is going on there. And I think the influence World War II had on the American public is very apparent in these films. And they might not be things that you pick up on automatically, but I think now that we're so far removed, we can talk about how a lot of these movies believe that there's higher-ups that are conspiring against the protagonist, and they get caught up in this problem that's much bigger than them. And when you were somebody who was fighting in a world war that was taking place halfway around the world from where you grew up, I think that sentiment kind of strikes home, right? Yeah, yeah, that's really powerful. And I think we'll talk about the the femme fatale as well, but you can definitely see the link in the rise of these characters of powerful women who lead men astray and how that corresponds with American soldiers coming back and women have taken a lot of the workforce that Mm -hmm. used to belong to them. And there's... um, of course, it's still the 40s there. It's very, yeah. uh, very far behind. But it was a definite leap forward for women as far as just working. Right. right. Yeah. They have more freedom. They have um, more say over their lives because there were no men there to kind of keep the status quo. So they were able to kind of progress into the future without the men. And then when the men came home or what men did come home, uh, it was changed forever. Yeah, and I don't think we have to look very far to know that when people who did not have freedom gain it, people who did have it to begin with see that as a threat. Yes. That still happens today, and it definitely happened then. Yes. And you can see it in a lot of the female characters that were in these film noirs. But that's our history lesson, so that sets us up for where we are. So now we can talk about the movie, or maybe even the history of making this one. So Billy Wilder went on to be one of the best, or at least most successful, American filmmakers of all time. He co-wrote this with Raymond Chandler, who would go on to write so many pulp novels and uh, screenplays that would fill out this genre for years to come. But... I think we could do a whole episode talking about the two of them writing this together because it was just a train wreck from what I hear. Yeah. So Chandler said like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll write that. And he wrote like an 80 page script and he had never written a script before. So Billy Wilder took it and threw it in the garbage and said, OK, now we can actually learn to write. Oh. And they just bickered and fought constantly for the entire uh, writing process of this. Sounds productive. Um. Chandler was a recovering alcoholic, so Billy Wilder would take it upon himself to drink a little bit extra, just to, just to fuck with him a little bit. <laughs> Chandler was also married to an older woman, so Billy Wilder would try to bring young women around the place as much as possible, just to show, like, look what I can do. Yeah. Just to, just to be a dick. And I think one of my favorite dickish moments of Billy Wilder was that this film was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Screenplay. And Wilder did not invite Chandler to the Academy Awards. <laughs> he just, like, didn't want him there. Oh, but it gets better. 
uh, they did not win for this, but Wilder did win for writing a screenplay next year, and he wrote a movie called The Last, The Lost Weekend, and it was about an alcoholic writer that he based on Chandler. Oh my god! And then he won an Academy Award for that. That's hilarious. So, yeah. And uh, Barbara Stanwyck, who plays Phyllis in this. She did not want to be in this movie because she said, how could I go home living with a character like that? Yeah. And Billy Wilder said, like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were an actress. <laughs> and then she did it. Uh, Fred McMurray did not want to do this movie. He was only in comedies before that. Oh, so this is a big departure for him. Yeah. I, I, all three of them, uh, the main cast, w- they were playing really against type. And McMurray would go on to do lots of uh, TV sitcom type stuff and lots of Disney movies and would go back to playing mostly comedic roles. Huh, interesting. And then Edward G. Robinson, who plays, I think his name's Keys. The, yeah. He was like a big time star in the 30s. I know him from Little Caesar. He kind of invented that... Uh, what we think of as an old-timey mobster. Right. The, the mashing. Yeah. Yeah, that was Edward G. Robinson. I, when you're doing that, you're doing an impression of him. Or sometimes if you're doing the dirty rat bit, you're doing Jimmy Cagney. Huh. But Jimmy Cagney never said dirty rat. I love when we learn things on this podcast. <laughs> this is my favorite. I think that's what this episode is a little bit. But I'm I'm pretty much done. But uh, Edward G. Robinson also did not want to be in this because he's, like, one of the biggest stars in the world. And he's like, I don't do, like, side characters. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did. And I think he was great in this one as well. I liked him. I thought he did a good job. I feel like he didn't super overact, mostly. Um, But, yeah, I think that uh, all of these characters ended up being really good for their roles. Yeah. The only one I didn't like was they have a boss. Do you remember that scene with that guy? Oh, yeah. He seemed so, like... Like, almost British? Kind of British, and just, like, his whole character was just, like, unnecessary, almost. He seemed like a stage actor that was coming into yeah. film and, like, didn't like, know what to do. He'd only done, like, Shakespeare. I only talk like this. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't and work. He just, like, he's used to really emoting so that the people in the back row can hear yeah. him. Yeah. And see Yeah, him. he was playing to the cheap seats. He was seats. really going for it. <laughs> Everyone else was, like, very believable in their roles. And I'm like, why is this guy in this movie? Because he's clearly lost. (laughs) Yeah, even if uh, McMurray doesn't exactly exude a naturalist delivery, Mm -hmm. it fits the movie and the tone of things. This character did not. Yeah, I agree. And I guess the only other thing we should talk about briefly before getting into things is the production code or the Hayes Code, because film censorship was in full force through the 30s and 40s because they started making a lot of gangster movies in the late 20s and into the 30s, starring Edward G. Robinson, many of them. And they created this production code to make sure any of those things wouldn't go on anymore. They didn't want any sort of glamorization of violence, but they also had so many arbitrary rules. Like, you couldn't show the shadow of a pregnant woman. You couldn't show a toilet flushing. (sighs) All sorts of things like that were in here as well. So there's a lot of choices in this movie. Some work. Actually, I'd say most work, but some maybe not as much that were influenced because of this production code. Like, um, when the husband is murdered in the car, mm-hmm. you couldn't show that. Right. But I think it was a great choice to show Phyllis's face and have her be, like, pretty much emotionless. Yes. You can see how checked out she is. Yeah. Or how, like, sociopathic, perhaps, mm-hmm. she is. It also took many years for this film to get made. I think they started trying to make it about eight years earlier, but it just couldn't because of the subject matter. And in the original ending, they had... Phyllis and Neff committing suicide together. Oh. But that was too much of a going out in a blaze of glory type right. of thing. So they had to chop that. And then they actually filmed an ending where Neff goes to the gas chamber and is executed. Whoa. Which I'm very glad that Wilder That's got rid of that. too much. Yeah. It, I love the ending as it is. So I, I, I think that would have been way too much. But they had to do that for the script to kind of get it through the, the censors. True. Um, I liked the way that it ended. It seemed very... Well, we'll talk about it. But it seemed uh, to fit the way that the movie was going. I agree. Well, I think that's enough for Indies Film School. <laughs> let's get into things. And let's start with talking about uh, 
the structure of this story. Okay. It starts off at the end, and we have this framing story with the recording. Mm-hmm. How did you like that? Um, I liked it. We always watch the movie, like, sh- like quickly. We kind of fast forward through it when we're doing our notes right before we record, so it's kind of fresh. And I noticed a lot more things when we were watching it the second time. Yeah, me too, actually. I wish I'd watched it a second time uh, earlier because I think the first time I hadn't seen it in such a long time Mm -hmm. that I was just following the plot and not picking up all these little things. But I do like this convention of the framing story. And that is something that they invented for the film. It wasn't in the original novel. Because you get this confession right off the top. So we know that our tension isn't going to be about, is this plan going to work? So I like that because I wonder if it was innovative at the time, because now the tension about a movie like this is is the plot. It's that murder, whether it's going to happen, whether they get caught. But in this one, that's not the case, because we know right off the beginning that he doesn't get the money and he doesn't get the woman. He tells us that. And we see some things wrong with him. We don't know that he's been shot at this point, but we know things aren't going well. Mm-hmm. And I guess this kind of gets into some sort of like existential fatalism, right? <laughs> right? That we know where this movie is going. And these characters are kind of like trapped in this story. The visuals already have a lot of uh, claustrophobia to them. The rooms get smaller and tighter as the movie goes on. True, yeah. And I think these characters are also like trapped in this story because we know where they're going to end up by the end of it. And it's just like going along that journey with them. But I like the, the use of the framing story because it focuses your attention in a place where it normally wouldn't go. Yeah, for We're sure. not worried about whether or not this plot will be successful because we already know that. So mm-hmm. we get to focus on lots of other things as the story goes along. I do like that. Um, and I don't think that it ruined the ending for me because you don't realize what actually happened. And uh, yeah, I liked his narration. I don't think it was like the Titanic lady narration where it like really pulled you from the story. Oh, she was terrible. And for any new listeners, we have uh, like 113 or so other episodes <laughs> that you can go back and uh, listen to. We talked about Titanic, and I actually was surprised how much I liked it, but the framing story in that was terrible. So She's so annoying. Yeah. But let's go into this movie some more. Which of our two leads do you want to talk about first? Um, let's talk about Walter Neff. Walter Neff, played by Fred McMurray. So I said that this movie kind of epitomizes lots of film noir uh, techniques. We have that narration that's often seen in these types of movies. And we also have uh, the anti-hero. And this is kind of an interesting place in filmmaking because it's kind of the birth of the anti-hero. Like, of course, there's stuff in literature earlier, but... Um, earlier in the 30s, there were a bunch of gangster movies that kind of glamorized crime, and those were quickly stopped by the production code. But they weren't heroes ever. You cheered for the bad guys, which mm-hmm. is, I think is different than this. But with the birth of film noir, we don't exactly glamorize the villains, and um, but we're not celebrating law enforcement either. We're like set on this path where we have to relate to the narrator because they're the protagonists. We're seeing the world through their right. eyes. And uh, usually if we have this much insight into a character, they're going to be like a hero. But with film noir, it complicated this idea a Hmm. lot. And uh, Neff is is not a hero, but he's not a villain. So he's kind of that anti-hero character. Like, he's not extremely virtuous, nor is he fully evil. He's just a uh, fallible, corruptible, real person. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a weak-willed character, I would say, but... But not a hero nor a villain. So maybe he is uh, an early example of a film anti-hero. What did you think of his performance? Uh, I liked it because he was very calm and kind of cool to the um, like kind of almost bubbly hysterical nature of Phyllis at the beginning of the movie. Okay. 
I was going to say, but Phyllis isn't that, but she does play that. Yes. At yeah. the beginning, she's very much like... She's pretending. She's to- pretending to be that like perfect blonde housewife who, you know, says all the right things and is very um, like Stepford almost. Sure. And so his... Uh, Walter Neff's personality as the insurance salesman at the beginning, because they are both kind of playing a role at the beginning. Definitely. Um, I think that it plays really well against her kind of bubbly, excessive cheerfulness. Do you find Walter Neff a likable person? Not like a good performance, but do you find that guy likable? Yeah, he's fine. I find him like smarmy. Oh, really? I don't. I don't like him. And I don't think you need to like him. To like the movie. Right. The way he talks, the way he's like all over her right Mm -hmm. off the beginning. He has a sort of a misplaced confidence that I think is is very common today. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was common then. And I think that is is key to how good his performance is. Mm -hmm. Because he has no business being this confident. No. He's a, like a lonely guy who has, it seems like, no friends outside of Edward G. Robinson. And even then, they're work friends. Exactly, yeah. And he comes into this place, he just throws his hat down, kind of like goes and sees the fish, and just, just hits on this married woman. Yeah, without knowing that she's interested. Yes. But that misplaced confidence, I think, is so key to getting this plot to where it needs to go. For sure, yeah. Because if he's a reserved person who, like, waits to see if people are interested in him, she would never have chose him to move this uh, murder plot forward. Yeah. And I don't know if we'll talk about her very much, but the daughter, whose name was maybe Lola? I think it's Lola, yeah. I didn't quite get why they were together very often. Mm -hmm. But I think talking about him as being this unnecessarily confident guy and that being his his downfall, it's like it's quite a literal example of hubris. Like he thinks he has a lot of pride in uh, how he thinks he appeals to women, but that was not the case. They wanted something from him. He thought he was getting something from them, but it was not the case. And Lola seems to be using him to make her other suitor jealous oh maybe i thought it was that he was trying to help lola because he kind of has this hero complex of like oh look what i can do look how good i am i can all the women want me and i'm gonna help out all the women because you know that's just the kind of guy i am i feel like that's how he went into it but i feel like she saw it as an opportunity to get her boyfriend back quite possibly yeah. yeah i also wonder if he is kind of looking out for her because he has a sense of guilt because, you know, he killed her father. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, a little bit, maybe. Maybe there's some of that, too. But yeah, I think that his performance is maybe more nuanced than I gave it credit for initially. Mm -hmm. Because when you watch it the first time, you're like, why does this guy think he's so great? He's (laughs) not. But that's the key to it. Right. Hmm. Interesting takeaways. (laughs) Well, what about uh, Barbara Stanwyck as... Phyllis, whatever her last name is. Barbara Stanwyck, who plays Phyllis Diedrichson. Oh, Diedrichson, that's right. So she is a housewife who seems very bored. And when you first meet her, she seems like the perfect housewife. And then you start to see that fall away as she realizes that Neff is the guy who's going to help her or that she hopes is the guy who's going to help her uh, change her life. I might disagree a little bit with her being like this perfect housewife type because I think she's more of, or at least she's played earlier on as more of like a perfect trophy wife. Right. Because she's not, she doesn't know what's in her fridge. The maid does all of that. She doesn't do any of the housewife type stuff. True. She just like lays out in the backyard and sunbathes. That's a good point. Maybe housewife is the wrong word. One thing I do remember when I learned about this film so long ago is so many people had complaints about her wig. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, it was just a known thing that everyone hated this wig. Huh. And Billy Wilder would do nothing about it. And I think that is important because I think she is, oh, she's a phony, right? Right. So I think this very artificial looking wig kind of symbolizes her character of, like, 
being like, look how pretty I am. But when you look closely, you're like, no, 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 that's not pretty. It's fake and looks wrong. Yeah. And that's who Phyllis is. Yeah, for sure. I think it definitely made her look a little bit more like, I'm beautiful and that's why my husband likes me or doesn't like me or wanted me initially. Um, and yeah, it definitely makes her look a little bit more Barbie than it does like normal person. Yeah, maybe. I think that's true. Yeah, it's like it's like hard plastic, you know, like Ken hair. Yes. That's like it's got the waves in it, but it's not really for anything. It's more of a helmet. Yeah. And I think today we might not pick up on that as much because, well, most of us probably don't know what Barbara Stanwyck normally looks like. But this was apparently quite a departure for her. Oh, and I think a lot of the time when we look at a movie that is before we were born, we're like, yeah, maybe that's just what hair looked like then. Maybe people just wore like George Washington wigs <laughs> because that's kind of what hair is. It does look like a, kind of like an old timey judge wig, but for girls. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Those bangs were uh, oh, quite man. the curls. It it was it looked like a separate piece of hair. Yes, yeah, it looked like a clip like, on clipped yeah. into into the wig just to make it look. Old timey. Uh, outside of wigs, which we've been discussing on this podcast more and more, it seems like. Yeah. Why <laughs> well, is we did a... that. We did a movie that had Christina Aguilera and Cher. So, right. of course, we're going to talk about wigs. Yes, then. that was a movie of wigs. It was a very wiggy movie. Yeah. Burlesque. Go check it out. <laughs> Shit's Creek also has lots of wigs. Right, right, right. Yeah. But uh, outside of the wigs, how did you like her performance? Um... I liked her once the plot started. Like you were talking about, upon a second viewing, when we know what her character is up to, Mm -hmm. her performance seems much better. Yes. Because at the beginning, I felt like it was stiff. I felt like the two performances didn't match. Yes, but then we know that she, Phyllis, is acting at the beginning. And Stanwyck is acting as a person acting. Which is difficult to do, but I think pulled off because I think early in the movie, a lot of her lines don't seem sincere. Hmm. And I think upon my first watching, I just took that as like, well, I guess Stanwyck's not that great. But then you learn that she is playing a part that's playing a part. Right. It's another one of those that uh, does well upon review. Yes. Like when you watch it again, you're like, oh, I see what you're doing (laughs) there. She was playing a level above the audience's uh, viewing. Hmm, interesting. I really enjoyed her voice. It seemed very almost cat-like. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. That like low kind of purr. Which she does later when she's being more seductive. Yes, yes. when she's being seductive and when she's talking about the plot. She has this voice that she does. Yes. And I really found that to be like a good kind of way to really get lost in the plot and to believe her at first i actually thought that might have been a little too stylized for my liking but then when i realized that it is an uh, a character acting mm-hmm. of course she would go that sort of route right yeah it seems appropriate that phyllis would like try to use her sexuality mm-hmm. in uh it to get what she wants because that was kind of that's her whole goal right yes yeah well i guess Talking about uh, sexuality to get what you want, we can talk about the whole idea of the femme fatale. Absolutely. Because I think this is pretty much uh, the epitome of it. Oh, for sure. in this, she does... So the idea usually in these films is there is a woman who, of course, is up to no good, and she uses her sexuality to get men to do what she wants rather than doing the bad things herself. Yes. And um, Phyllis does that to uh, great results. So the role of the femme fatale, they also subvert traditional power dynamics and they're bending men to their will and they're always the downfall of these poor, poor men who are too stupid to know better. (laughs) And like I said earlier, I think a lot of this comes from the insecurity of men returning from war and now there's women... And in their mind, they're like, these women are taking what was ours. They're taking the power that we had And it's going to be our downfall. Yeah. So I think that is, and I'm sure I'm not the first to come up with this. This is probably in every textbook, and I probably learned this in my uh, Film Studies 101 class. (laughs) But it seems uh, 
pretty apparent when you watch a movie like this. Yeah. And it also seems pretty prescient for today as well. For sure, yeah. And I can easily see how people would not like the representation of women in these movies Mm -hmm. because they tend to either be the damsel in distress who needs saving from a man or a woman who is manipulating a man. Right. But I wonder if our views on feminism have changed in the last 20 years so much so that a character like this could kind of be celebrated. Like, Mm -hmm. I know she's still, she's a villain, so we can't uh, celebrate her too much, right? But... I think the idea of a woman who is trying to get more power in a world that does not easily give it to her, Mm -hmm. and she's using all of the tools at her disposal to get what she wants, I think there is a certain amount of empowerment in that. Mm -hmm. Like, am I crazy? (laughs) No, I think think that... This is to a level where she has figured out how to kind of control everyone around her. Yes. And so suddenly she's in charge and it is kind of an empowering lens to look at it. Yeah, it's funny. I wonder how many other movies will be like this where they kind of come full circle. Where at the time it was just, yeah, that's how things are. Mm -hmm. And then... Like, through the 80s and 90s, people look at this as like, oh, this is so misogynist. Yeah. And there, there is definitely bits of that here, too. But I think we've come around far enough now that we're like, we could celebrate this character a little yeah, bit. Yeah, for sure. But, of course, she is still responsible She's for her death. still kind of a murderer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about that real quick. So she doesn't murder her husband, but it is, of course, her idea. Do you think she murdered the first wife? Yes. Yeah, I agree. And I like how her story unravels throughout the movie, mm-hmm. where she's first like, I was his wife's nurse, and like, I just was there when he was falling apart after she died, yeah. and and then doesn't really explain how they ended up getting together. And then towards, like, you hear kind of three versions of the story. Yes. One where... Um. oh, he, I can't remember what the second part is, but it's like a little bit closer to the truth. And then the third time it's told, um, it's like, oh yeah, she did it. <laughs> like, I think the in-between version is that she may have allowed the wife to die out of neglect right. by like leaving the windows open yes. and she had pneumonia. That's what it was. Like so yeah. she's like more culpable. And then in the last one, it's like, no, she had like intent. And I also love that we don't know. Yeah. It you could kind be of have to any make up your, one of those. You have to make up your own mind, yeah. which is fun because then you're really thinking about it instead of having it like handed to you. Yeah, I think her character is more complex than perhaps you might give it credit for on mm-hmm. the surface because we're like, oh, here's another femme fatale. She's manipulating man at the end. But there's a lot more layering to it than I think some of the era less well-written film noirs have. Mm-hmm. And we learned that she was probably trying to kill the daughter right afterwards. Yeah, right? She exactly. was sending Nino, trying to get him all riled up and trying to get him to kill her. Yes, yeah. I uh, I didn't, I could have done without Nino. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's just, it kind of complicated things unnecessarily. <laughs> it added points. an extra layer that didn't really add anything for me. Um, I think we could have had him like exit when the murder happens and not come back and i would have been fine with it i think all it does is put a finer point on the fact that she manipulates men to get what she wants yeah but we we know that already so i feel like the nino part maybe didn't need to be in there true but maybe we're just so much more discerning than your (laughs) (laughs) typical viewer but probably not i feel like i'm less discerning than the typical viewer oh no you got it Let's talk about this uh, main murder plot and I guess just like an overview of this entire movie and how you liked it. Because it is very different from murder mysteries or things like that that you would get today. Mm -hmm. Like we watched A Simple Favor not too long ago and I was comparing that to this because they have a lot of similarities, of course. Mm-hmm. But I think where they differ is most modern movies are concerned with the twists. Right. They're concerned with uh, keeping the audience on their heels and constantly reinventing the plot so you don't know what's going on and you're going to be surprised. And by the end, you'll be like, wow, what a roller coaster yeah. that went on. 
And I, I respect those movies, but that's not something I particularly enjoy. Okay. I think most of those movies are about the screenwriter saying, look how clever I am, and right. less about the characters being clever. True. And I think this one, although much more simple than any of those types of twisty plots, I would argue the characters in here might actually be smarter, even though they make many stupid mistakes. <laughs> um, yeah, they're definitely written smarter, and... Uh... You can see that in some of the calculation that they both do. Um, Like, how do I get him to do what I need him to do and kill my husband? And on his side, he's like, how do I help her get away with murder so that I can be with her? Because I've decided that she's the one that I want. Yeah, and very quickly, too. Uh, Yeah, it's (laughs) like they meet and then she comes to his house and they're like, I'm crazy for you. Also, this is a time where you could, like, go on a date with someone or meet them once and then ask them to marry you. Get and then usually later. you'd be like, oh, okay. Okay, and sure, yeah. 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 I, I like that the tension in this movie isn't leading up to the crime or the heist like most uh, modern movies, but rather most of the tension lies in the unraveling of the plan, mm-hmm. which I I prefer. And it's not full of those twists, like I said, but... It's just about this half-hatched plan falling apart, as you would expect a murder plot to fall apart. Like, most things like this don't go successfully. Right. But since we're on this journey and we're relating to the narrator, you feel this tension, uh, this fear of being caught, this guilt, and this dread when the plan starts falling apart. Mm -hmm. And I think that, to me at least, is a more affecting choice than just being like, twist, 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 gotcha. But I know I I do believe I'm in the minority on that. I I enjoy it just because it's, like, less analytical. Like, it makes for a more fun movie, a lighter watch almost, because you don't have to go really hard for it, the twists. Right, but... In this movie, uh, Edward G. Robinson is me watching one of those twisty movies. Because if I watch, like, Knives Out, at the end it's like, well, why didn't they just do this? And you're like, no, you're not supposed to think like that. And you're not. And I know that's part of it is, like, going along on that journey. You're going to enjoy it more if you don't look into things. Mm -hmm. But they make very clear mistakes in this. And Edward G. Robinson is just like, well, if he broke his leg, why didn't he put in a claim? Yeah. And that's what I would normally think watching one of these movies. So I like that there is a person in this movie that uh, is like kind of calling out your typical screenwriter. Right. There's also a point, this is a little off topic, but when she goes to his home to meet him and she says, oh, you forgot your hat. And she doesn't have a hat. Yeah. And he goes, oh, we'll put it in here. That seems to me like... I could imagine the discussion in while they were writing this of like, well, we, she needs a reason to go there. Maybe she forgot his hat. And then the other writer, maybe Billy Wilder is the, the better one in this case. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, says like, well, she wants to go there. Why don't we just say that? Yeah. And I think the simplicity of that and being free of the constraints of like typical screenwriting, when writers do that, I, I appreciate it very much. That definitely feels like early relationship stuff where you're like coming up with any excuse to kind of see the person. Right. You're like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm just going to be in the neighborhood, even though it's on the other side of the city from me. (laughs) Just like I'm just running an errand over here, so I may as well stop by and see you. (laughs) See, I never did that. I just said like. Hey, that was great. Let's do it again tomorrow. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay great. Who is this guy that just says what he thinks? What a weirdo. It's refreshing. One other nice little touch I appreciated in the screenwriting was the language that Phyllis uses. Mm-hmm. Because while she is still playing the part of like, oh, no, I'm distressed. He hits me. Which who knows if he ever does or not. Yeah, well, because everything else she says seems to come up false. Yeah. <laughs> When she's playing that role, she often mirrors the language that Neff had used earlier. Yes. When he says a plan, she always goes like, oh, yeah, like you said, blah, 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 blah. 
And she's constantly telling him that this is your plan and I'm just doing what you want. Yes. And when you're watching it the first time through, you're just like, oh, yeah, she's like a clueless woman who doesn't yeah. know what she's doing. She's just trying to And it's only up. later that you realize how clever it is that she kept putting it on him because mm-hmm. she convinced him that this is his idea. You yeah. Know? Which is hilarious because it's clearly very much driven by her once you figure it out. She's like killed the wife and convinced everybody that it was natural causes and then she is bored of her husband so she convinces someone that like he's gonna help her by doing this thing that he thought of and also get her paid yeah oh thank you so much for thinking of this and trying to get me all this money yeah that's so nice of you and then she's also convincing Nino that, oh, I'm telling you the truth. And then it's going to end up in the murder of the only person who suspects her. Yeah. And Phyllis, stone cold. <laughs> Bad lady. Speaking of how stone cold she is. So at the very end, she says like, no, of course I never loved you. And I love that whole bit. That was great because it is kind of the antithesis of so many other melodramas. Because yes. this is just a, it's a melodrama. But then after she shoots him once, she says like, just right now, just this moment, I fell in love with you. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that, honestly. I don't either. I found that kind of confusing. And like, I would have gotten it if they had left it at... And I never loved you because she's like very clearly using him. Yes. Um, but then to throw in like the I just fell in love with you now, it doesn't make much sense to me. Yeah. I wonder if there's like this whole second or actually probably by this point, 12th step of her plan where she wants to convince him like, oh, yeah, I love you again. And that's going to help her get out of something. Mm-hmm. Because she does have this whole plan that we don't even know all of her plan. Because she has that gun there already. Was she already planning on killing him? Mm-hmm. We're not really let into her plan. And right. I think that's I think that's fine. Yeah. But she definitely has a lot more going on than the audience is aware of. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if she was acting then. Or if because this is the first time she's actually killed someone. Like, maybe she let the mom die by just opening the windows and not paying attention. She got Neff to kill her husband. In this instance, she has the gun in her hand. And after she shoots him once, maybe that frightens her, right? Mm -hmm. And it's more out of guilt than out of love that she's saying all of this. Shooting a gun, even, like... If you you have, like, intent to kill somebody, that first shot is always very shocking. It's, like, jarring. And then maybe it kind of woke her up for a moment and made her realize that she actually does love him. Did you feel like that the first time you shot a squirrel? Oh, my God. No. Let's not <laughs> talk about this on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> but, yes. <laughs> I, I've never shot a uh, living thing, so I'll, I'll never know. The... Uh, the instant remorse you have when you shoot a uh, a Walter Neff type. <laughs> the squirrel wasn't a Walter Neff type. I, I don't know that. <laughs> I don't. I know very little about that squirrel. All I know is that his uh, family still misses him. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because at the end, I really liked that he gives this big speech of like, ah, I know the plan. I know this and this and this and this. She doesn't do any of that. She's so beyond. She doesn't do the James Bond villain speech of like, here's my plan. Now you can stop it. Mm-hmm. She just shoots him. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's why I think that she has more to her plan. And maybe she was remorseful and regretful, but I don't think that she loved him. But I think she felt something because her eyes actually well up at this time, yeah. which they don't in her other lies. Yeah, I think it all becomes real in that moment where she's like, oh, I just shot him and he's going to die. And now I have to figure out all of this on my own. True. I think she's, she's kind of to... run out of people yeah. to manipulate. At and this maybe point. the I love you is like, I really liked how good with a plan you were. Yeah. And like, I loved having you around for that because I didn't have to shoulder most of the burden. Do you think they had sex in this movie? No. I say yes. You do? Yeah, because I think it's one of those production code things, because they can't. Right. But there's little 
clues that filmmakers often use to like show you like we know what happened so the part where she goes to his house they do kiss then Mm -hmm. and then there's a cut and then i think he lights a cigarette or she does and then he like fixes the carpet that they got like messed up oh i think they had sex in the meantime oh okay because yeah and then they have a drink yeah yeah i think anytime a couple is together and they light a cigarette i think that's like 1940s way of showing like lighting they just a cigarette sex. and fixing the carpet yeah if you know what i yeah. mean <laughs> wink wink so we talked about narration our flawed anti-hero our femme fatale I think one of the other things we had to talk about with film noir is just the visual style. Mm-hmm. How did you like that, this being your kind of first foray? Um, it was done really well that didn't make me think it looked dated. Like, it was done in a way that seemed almost familiar to me because when you watch, like, a more modern take on a film noir, like Simple Favor, there were moments where it was kind of dark and dreary and you you kind of got the feel for it. And so I got a very similar feel in this and it um, didn't look dated to me. It just kind of looked more like a period piece. Yeah, I think there are so many references to film noir in things that are just, like, any type of crime movie mm-hmm. or, like, so many horror movies use a lot of the same uh, visual aesthetics. Yeah. That it's not so unfamiliar to us these days. Like, right off the beginning, I love how things go. Like, we see this guy limping towards the camera, and you don't know who it's going to be. And it's not until, like, way later in the movie that you know who it was. Yeah. And it's kind of his, like, walk down the train Mm-hmm. is probably what that walk was when you see him on his crutches. Yes. And you don't see his face. And then we have the opening sequence, and it's very dark. Like, it looks almost smoggy, which it probably wasn't. I wonder how they did that, or maybe that's just how it looked in L.A. at the time. But I like that he's in what's clearly Los Angeles, but he's still so isolated. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of setting you up for, for the rest of the movie. Right. And it's so dark there, but once we go into the flashback, it starts off quite bright. Mm-hmm. And the movie gradually gets darker as you go along. Yes, and I liked that. Just as he is kind of uh, following this dark path that is portrayed on the screen as well. Also, the rooms tend to get smaller as things go along. Yeah, you said that. That's uh, a really interesting device that I didn't notice but now that you mention it it actually is like very obvious and i think when they're at their best little techniques like that go unnoticed but they just kind of make you feel like the law is closing in on you he's running out of options and that's just kind of mirrored in the visuals as well i also love how when you meet phyllis first she's up on the balcony and it's very symbolic of the power that she is going to have over neff for the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. and then when you go to the office neff is up on the balcony and there's all those other people working underneath him right yeah i found the um the layout of that office terrifying yes because i would not get any work done like (laughs) i have right now in like i have the closest thing i've ever had to an office and It's only because everybody has plexiglass shields now. So I have like four walls and a doorway now. But um, I would not be able to work with like three desks next to me attached, basically. Like I wouldn't get anything done. Oh, I thought you meant more like the the feel of it seemed very like oppressive Mm -hmm. and very... um... Again, very expressionist. Also, like, the boss standing on the balcony above you watching you work. Yeah, if you go watch, like, Metropolis and stuff, all of that's going to be... It's like a little bit slave driver where they're standing over you and, like, cracking the whip. Yeah. Yeah, I think overall, though, I just enjoy the visual style, how they're willing to go and take chances and, like, try things out, and how that always seems to just emphasize the plot or the character usually what the character is feeling is kind Mm of leaking out of them and being shown on the screen and the setting around them right yeah well i think we're getting close to the end of our wrap up on 
double indemnity. Do you have any other little things that we didn't get a chance to touch on? No, I think we covered it pretty well. Um, I really enjoyed the look of this movie, and I think that um, this is a good one to kind of start on. Definitely. If you're not sure about film noir. I'd almost say watch A Simple Favor and then watch this one because I saw (laughs) so many parallels once I actually sat down and thought about it. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much of film that we don't realize that, like, all filmmakers, of course, are, like, standing on the shoulders of giants. Right. Building on the previous generation. And this was a very unique kind of turning point because everything was moving over from Europe to the U.S. Of course, World War II is just a defining point in in modern history Mm -hmm. in general. And we got to see so many of these techniques used for the first time that would go on to influence films till today. Mm -hmm. And thematically, I think all these ideas of uh, distrust would reemerge again in the 70s, my my other favorite uh, <laughs> yes. favorite New time period. Indie loves the 70s and also anything before like 1950. Much of it, yeah. because I think those uh, those elements clearly speak to me, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, the pessimistic fatalism of a lot of these movies is something interesting because it's also like a time capsule of of that era. Mm-hmm. It gives us some insight into how people think then, because I think a lot of the movies today, it might be a little harder to always gauge the world around based on like the latest Avengers movie. Yeah. Although I know, I think I could make a case for how those are indicative of our I culture as well. A hundred percent believe that you could do that. <laughs> um, some other things we didn't talk about drive through beer. Of course we, I guess we did mention that. Yeah. That's a bad idea, but I still kind of want it. Uh, <laughs> the grocery store was alphabetical. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was so strange. I thought about it, and I don't know if I would like that more or not. I don't think so. I prefer groupings. Although then I could alphabetize my shopping list and just do one pass through the store. True. See, actually, because I do often make my like when I'm doing a big shop or I'm shopping for like an event, I'll go through the store in my brain, usually one that I know, and go like, okay, what do I need from produce? What do I need from vegetables? What do I need from bread? What do I need from, like, the cheese section? I'm, of course, just describing the no frills by our house, but (laughs) I think that if it was alphabetical, I would totally be into that. Yeah, let's alphabetize our supermarkets. All right, let's get on it. You heard her, folks. (laughs) All you um, Steve Loblaw. Is is that a person? I don't think so. I also don't think we mentioned the banter enough. I loved their banter. Yeah. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Like, I love the back and forth like that. And I think people may argue that that puts them out of the movie because it is so stylized. But I think we don't realize how stylized movies are now. It's just a style that we're familiar with. Because I think if you look at a lot of movies, people don't act or speak like that ever. Mm-hmm. But that's how they are in movies, right? So we we accept it. But when things are of a different generation that we're not familiar with, we're a little more harsh on them, perhaps. I agree. So, Indy, any final thoughts for Film Noir 101 with Indy Rendell? <laughs> well, I like that you enjoyed it. Sometimes I worry when things are that old that it might just pull you out completely. But I think there's enough in this for modern audiences. I think if you're looking at it in a film history type of perspective, it's definitely worth watching in that Mm -hmm. regard. Uh, We didn't really touch on the very, very ending, but I love that... The last lines of this movie are, I love you too. Yeah. Because there was this kind of like low-key love story yeah. between Neff and Keith. Yeah. I really liked their uh, their chemistry together. Yes. And I really hated, not hated, it really hurt when you could see how disappointed 
keys was in that. Yes, the yeah. There's like this moment where you can just see like he's just like, oh. Because he was such a father figure to Seriously, him. you? <laughs> like, it's so hurtful to yeah. him. And I love how Keyes thinks his job, like, he truly believes he has the most important job around. Yes. And I love that monologue he does about it. I love that he offers a job to Neff, but Neff, of course, doesn't want to do that kind of work. Yeah. Because Neff is up on the balcony. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to be one of those desk people no. down there. But I think the last little bit is... About how, like, oh, and little did you know that the person was as close as an office away to you. And Key says, you were closer than that. Yeah. And I think that's, like, a really telling line. Like, he, he like, really had a special place for him in his heart. And you can see that in that final scene where he's, like, helping him light a cigarette. Yeah, and then the little and switch he, like, where he lights and, it for like, him. He, like, sits on the ground with him because yeah. he like clearly can't go anywhere and they're waiting for the police and I feel like at that point Neff is kind of resigned to it definitely um, and so then Keyes comes and sits with him and is like lighting him a cigarette and is just like having kind of a tender moment yeah. with him and then Neff says I love you too yeah but yeah I, that the ending was a, a nice little uh, kind of a sad yeah little point at the end there but yeah i definitely recommend this movie although i don't think it's my favorite film noir i think it is maybe the most film noir film noir (laughs) and i think those ideas of alienation and isolation of a generation of americans who went to war and then came back to a world that had changed around them right all of that is present here all of the visual stuff, the birth of the anti-hero and the femme fatale and what that says about the world that made them. I think it's all very important. So um, go check out Double Indemnity. Well, you probably already should have because this podcast would have been pretty terrible if you haven't seen the movie. Uh, yeah, <laughs> guys, the point of the pre-episode is to learn about the movie, then you watch the movie, and then you watch the, or you listen to the main episode. Right, which brings us to our next episode. We will each have a small spoiler-free review, so nothing like we did today, just a quick little bit about something that we are into at the moment. And Samantha will tell us all about the movie we'll be watching for the week after that. Yes. So I think it's time to talk about our second sponsor of the episode, which is the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. They use a program called Vital Signs, which is an annual checkup conducted by the ECF in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. And this year's focus is on millennials, which is a group that suffers greatly um, in times of economic downturn or even just now during the pandemic. Yeah, don't I know it? Because we are technically millennials. Exactly. I didn't know that because um, I watch movies from the 40s. Apparently, (laughs) I'm a millennial. You are a millennial. Economically, I sure am a millennial. (laughs) Yes. So with the ECF, you can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. And once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds to people who need it. That's very cool. You can learn more at ecfoundation.org. Great. I think I might do that because I need some of that sweet millennial money. (laughs) (laughs) It's very true. I think millennials get a bad rap. Yeah, we're holding this nation together we're checking out your books and maybe my references shouldn't be library based we're waiting your tables <laughs> yes. and fixing your cars exactly and we're also the ones with the least job security and the lowest pay for skill in any generation ever we have to resort to podcasting exactly to pay our bills <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Samantha, how can people reach us? Because we do love hearing from you. I actually got really good feedback on our Darjeeling Limited uh, episode on Instagram. So thank you so much. The guy doesn't have his name as his Instagram handle. So I don't know his name, but thanks. I really appreciate it. It's he made a point of saying like, that we captured a lot of what he thinks and uh, gave him 
some new things to think about. And I always love that when you're talking to someone or listening to something and you're like, yeah, that's what I think. Having your own thoughts validated is very nice. So I'm glad we could do that for him. It is. So thank you. But where can other people reach us? Yeah, we love hearing from people, whether it's on Facebook at I Love This You Should Too Dash Podcast or on Instagram or Twitter at I-L-T-Y-S and the number two, or you can email us your long form love letters at I love this, you should, and the number two at gmail.com. And if you ever want us to actually read the thing, we will. We'll read just, it on here. Just put it in your note. <laughs> Say, hey, I want to be mentioned. We love to give shout outs. Yeah. Oh, uh, we're supposed to give Jasmine, my cousin Jasmine, a shout out. Oh, for runners. She apparently runs to our podcast, which is crazy to me. So Jasmine, you're doing great. Focus on your breath. You can get there. Uh, your pace has been dropping for the last like, 10 minutes. Let's pick it up. You're better than this. You can do it. You can do it. Just drive it home. All your runners out there. Pick it up. Yeah, Let's go. Exactly. Final stretch. Okay, well, we'll see you next week when I reveal what movie we'll be watching. Bye, everyone. Bye. Key Largo? No, not Key Largo. Double Indemnity. I was like, what? <laughs> Episode. <laughs> so confused. Um, double Indemnity. Here is Tone.